This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 308th episode, we're going to be covering one session of SVP, which is a lot. (laughs) It's both talks and posters, so sort of two sessions in the normal SVP world. But we also have some other stories from around the world. It's not just SVP. And we have Dinosaur of the Day, Taraskosaurus. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons who helped us to get through the week of SVP, knowing that we have all this wonderful support from our patrons. And this week, we'd like to thank two new patrons, Cosmic Parasaur and Elrex. Elrex actually joined a while ago, but I am just now getting around to thanking you. So thank you so much. And Cosmic Parasaur, thank you as well for joining our patronage. And our random drawing winners for this week are Jackson Crawford, Kelly, Ellen, Taya, Callum, Risa, Wurgersaurus, and Albertosaurus. Yeah, thank you so much. As Garrett said, we really appreciate all of your support, especially this last week with SVP, which was great. We did the live stream and got to chat with some of you during it. Good times. And if you want to join our growing community and get in on other rewards, then check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. Jumping into the news. <laughs> <laughs> but a little bit different because really it's jumping into SVP. Also known as the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology. We don't always say what SVP stands for. Oh, that's a good point. And this year, as you know, it was a virtual conference, which was obviously not the same. And we did miss seeing people in person and getting to, you know, pull people in randomly for interviews or even just meeting new people, things like that. But Silver lining was because it was virtual and on this platform, we had access to every single talk and poster. And normally that doesn't happen because there's so many talks going on at once that sometimes we have to pick and choose and miss out on a few things. But that was not the case this <laughs> year. We did watch the, all the dinosaur-related content. It was a bit tricky, though, because the platform shut down at exactly 9 p.m. on Saturday. <laughs> Yeah, Pacific time. It was midnight Eastern. So we thought we had until midnight. And then we realized while talking to somebody on one of the virtual hangouts that we only had till 9 p.m. our time so that we had a mad dash to watch as much as possible. Yep. But we managed. We did it. So pretty happy about that. There were 985 registrants, which is a good number. Because another good thing about this was that it opened up the conference to a lot of people that might not have been able to go otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, there wasn't too much of an international showing because the talks were somewhat live, depending on 
which phase it was in. So the talks were recorded, but there were sessions for talking about the talks that were on East Coast time. So not everybody could join everything. The other thing is they had a Q&A platform where people could type in questions asynchronously and then the authors could respond. Funny thing about that, though, was that this platform came with some prepackaged words that were censored Mm -hmm. that did not fit in well in a scientific, particularly paleontology community. And maybe you saw this because a few big outlets covered it, but words such as hell and pubic and bone and stream were censored so they would show up as uh, asterisks instead. And there's one paleontologist that had a great quote, how this is not a great group to ban these words because we often find pubic bones in streams. And then, of course, there's the Hell Creek Formation. Yeah. So people were calling it the Heck Creek Formation. Yeah. Or like spacing things out, like weird words like flange. And yeah, I thought stream was an especially strange one to mm-hmm. have banned. But yeah, tons of, I mean, I guess most words can be used in like a dirty way if you're clever enough with it. But this, the number of words that were banned on this platform were pretty <laughs> extreme. Yep. Someone started a Google Doc about it. But they did get around to fixing, I think, most of them. Yeah, it didn't unedit the old one. So so when you look through the Q&A, sometimes you're like, what are they saying? And usually there'd be a thing, a comment or two later, that's something like, oh, I didn't realize that word got deleted. And mm-hmm. it, sometimes it was even people's names, like parts of names. It would yeah, that out. was a problem for sure. Yeah. But other highlights were, as Garrett mentioned, you know, there'd be virtual meetups. So there'd be these live sessions and sometimes they would be in the forms of like, Q&A or maybe a more informal kind of hangout thing. And those were a lot of fun. And a lot of those felt kind of like our normal SVP experience. Yeah. Yeah, it was a relaxed setting. People are swapping stories, all that kind of thing. It wasn't quite as nice, but it did give you a little bit of the feel. And I, I was glad they had those, especially for the people that were doing their first time at SVP, because if you had your first ever SVP experience and all it was was pre-recorded talks, that would be quite a letdown. Mm-hmm. So at least there were some, some of them were more ad hoc, like people just posted on Twitter, hey, I'm doing this Zoom hangout or something. Other ones were more formal and then everything in between. So yeah, there were quite a few ways to interact with other paleontologists, which was nice. Yeah. And we were still able to meet quite a few people we hadn't met before, which was great. And a couple of the more party socialization events, I would say, happened on the last day of SVP on Saturday. There was one that used this platform Gather, and that was pretty cool because it's kind of like you're in a game. Yeah, it's like an overhead view, sort of like original Final Fantasy or Zelda or something where you walk around a screen from like a 2D plane from above. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in this case, it looked like kind of like Central Park or something and then a street surrounding. And then so you use your keyboard to move your avatar around. And then when you get near somebody else's avatar, the camera pops up for both of you and mm-hmm. you can chat, which was cool. And then you could have group chats as well. Yeah, you can expand. You can kind of switch between a view that was mostly the map and then little tiny windows of people popping up. And then you could expand it and kind of switch it and it would just be a little tiny map in the bottom. And then it looked more like a Zoom conference call interface, Yeah, which was nice. Although I got too curious <laughs> towards the end and I wanted to know what all the buttons did. And unfortunately, one of the buttons, which I guess I could see this coming in useful, is it changes the radius of how close you have to be to a person to see their camera. And I changed it so that we were in a group of, I don't know, five or six people. And then all of a sudden we only saw one. Yeah. 
because there was only one person <laughs> one space away from us, whereas before we were talking to people in a small huddle. Yeah, so it was a <laughs> frantic, like, how do I get back so they know I'm not ditching them? Yeah. <laughs> it was a pretty cool interface, though. We might try it sometime for like our patronage or something yeah. at some point. Yeah, it was pretty fun. And then another more casual party setting at the end was on Zoom, where there were 25 paleontologists in this room playing Spore. <laughs> and I hadn't really played Spore before, but it was really great seeing all these animals being built. So we made Spinosaurus. And then, of course, it's really accurate because it's a room full of paleontologists. And people are figuring out, because a lot of people played Spore before, they know what tricks to use to get certain aspects. Like, how do you get something to look like the spine on mm -hmm. the tail and things like that? Or how do you get the tail a little bit longer? And Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah, and they called, oh, they called the Spinosaurus the majestic murder swan at yeah. the end, yeah. Because there was a moment where they were like, it has a more swan-like neck, and then it was like, this isn't like a swan. Yeah. <laughs> it's murdery. Yeah. Another animal, this was a mammal, which I can't remember what mammal they were going for, but at the end, it was described as the Michelin rhino because it was so puffy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty fun. Overall, I think the conference worked pretty well for online, especially how quickly they slapped it together at the end. But there were some interface issues. It reminded me of like a 1995 Windows CD-ROM sort of thing where you could click through, but it wasn't really searchable in any useful way. Mm. <laughs> and it was easy to get lost in the interface and not find the right things. You had to move around a lot and things were mislabeled. And Right. Even the calendar view, there were a couple of the live sessions that we missed because just the way the scheduling appeared on the screen. We misread it. Yeah. And some of the audio, especially for the posters, because one nice thing actually was that for the posters, everybody recorded a two or three minute introduction to the poster, which is basically what people repeat over and over and over and over again if you're doing posters in person. But sometimes you can't get them if the person isn't there with their poster. So it was nice to have that recorded. But unfortunately, a lot of them didn't upload properly. So I would say only about half to two thirds of the posters I looked. Oh, that many. Yeah, that actually had the functioning audio with it. So mm -hmm. that was kind of a bummer. But yeah, overall, very good for virtual. I mean, obviously, it's not the same, but we still got to talk to a lot of people, meet some amazing paleontologists, mm -hmm. and we learned a a lot. I'm really glad they did it. If they hadn't done any SVP, if it was just straight up canceled, that would have been a huge bummer. We would have missed out on a lot of stuff. Yep. So I'm glad there was something. It did make us feel like we were sort of in the SVP environment, staying up late, going to all these hangouts late at night, and then getting up early in the morning for talks. It sort of puts you in that space and you, you're soaking up so much dinosaur information. It gets you all fired up about new knowledge, which Definitely. is my favorite part of SVP for sure. Oh, and then last, just a couple of because normally at SVP, the last day, there's an awards ceremony and banquet. And instead of that, they had a recording that went out on the last morning, that gave the highlights. And that's how we found out 985 registrants and things like that. And one of the highlights is that Beth Zakin won the Lazendorf 2D Art Award. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because we interviewed her about her work with the Scotty the Megarex book. But she didn't win it for that book. She won it for a very large, impressive mural. Yeah, it was massive. <laughs> it's definitely award-worthy for sure. Yeah, so congrats, Beth. Jumping into the dinosaur talks, the first set of talks we're going to cover were all under the topic of evolution and biology of non-avian theropods, also known as just the theropod session. <laughs> <laughs> Which meant 
many talks and many posters. Yeah, it could almost be described as the T-Rex session because there were so many T-Rex talks, which is often the case. But there was lots of other good stuff in there too, not just T-Rex. So going through them in a semi-random order, and it includes both talks and posters. I'm just going to mix them together because they're all the same topic. And basically, from what I understand, people submit their abstract, and then it gets selected for either a talk or a poster. I don't think they submit it as a talk or a poster. So from our perspective, it's all sort of the same amount of information, just in two different forms. So the first one I'm going to cover was presented by Adam Fitch. And it was all about the Chugwater and other formations in Wyoming in the western U.S. that include some late Triassic terrestrial sediment. So it's not just aquatic stuff, and that is important to us because that's where you tend to find dinosaurs. In this case, they were from the Carnian, more specifically between 231 and 237 million years old, which makes it the very beginning of dinosaur origins on Earth. Cool. And an important time period, well before dinosaurs were dominating the ecosystem. And typically, the earliest dinosaurs that we find that are in this time period are from South America or other parts of the world. We haven't seen a lot in North America from this time period, but there were a few cases that they found in North America. In this case, they were talking about UWGM 1975. So Wyoming? Yes, I'm sure it must be the University of Wyoming geological museum or something like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that specimen came out as a sister taxa to Neotheropoda, which is incredibly cool because we don't know much about the early origins of theropods. So it might mean that some of the earliest theropods came from North America and it isn't just South America that gets all the glory. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It makes sense too for how widespread and successful they were that they didn't just come from one place, popping up from multiple places. It's true. A real quick poster I want to mention didn't have a presenter associated with it. It was another one that had kind of a broken audio file. But they mentioned that on the north slope of Alaska, they found some juvenile raptors that were about 57% the size of adults. And that meant that juveniles probably lived, or just raptors in general, probably lived in Alaska year round. And this was northern Alaska, so it was in the Arctic Circle even back then. Those are some tough dinos. Yes. We might have talked about this before. I'm not sure. Um, I know we talked about some hadrosaurids from that area that they probably didn't migrate because we found lots of very small hadrosaurs around there. But I'm not sure if we talked about the raptors. It makes sense if you had baby herbivores, you might have some baby carnivores <laughs> to go with them, though. Next up was a poster by Corwin Sullivan, and they were talking about the DC bone bed, which is near Grand Prairie, way up in Alberta near that. Philip J. Curry Dinosaur Museum that we drove to <laughs> a few years ago now. They found a Sainathid dentary as well as two pelvic bones, an ilium and a pubis. Half of those words you probably can't say on the SVP Oh, that's day. true. Well, you could by the end of the week. That's true. In this case, the dentary is only about three centimeters wide, which is why they think it was probably either a juvenile or a new species. And in case you're curious, it's from the Wapiti Formation, which makes it about 73 million years old. So we might have a new Sainathid from the late Cretaceous of northern Alberta, Canada, coming out soon. Depends if they think that was enough material or not. Or if they find more material later. Yeah, more fossils always help. For anybody on the east coast of the U.S., 
the next poster probably would interest you. It was by Brownstein, and they talked about a late Cretaceous find from Appalachia, which is basically the eastern half of North America during the Cretaceous while it was split by the Western Interior Seaway. You had Laramidia on the left side and or west side, and Appalachia on the east side. And Cretaceous-wise, we have much better fossils from the western end than we do on the eastern side. But they did recently find two individual hadrosaurs known from post-cranial remains in Appalachia, as well as one tyrannosauroid known from foot bones, one partial tail vertebra, and a manual ungual, also known as a finger claw. So there are some new bones popping up over there, and it might help us fill in the gaps of what was going on on the east coast that we are having trouble with because there are less fossils to find over there. That's fun to see. Yeah. I think part of the problem, too, is that the East Coast right now has a lot more plants on it and a lot more dirt, whereas you go out into the Badlands and it's just barren rock. There's a lot less of that barren rock going on on the East Coast. The next poster I want to mention was by Denise Colleen Maranga, and basically the gist of it is they found a new Microraptor specimen. The dentary is broken off and it's kind of perpendicular to the skull, but the important thing there is since it's broken and it's not fossilized with a closed mouth, you can see the teeth a lot better because you can see the teeth sticking out of the maxilla. And then you can also see the teeth in the dentary or the jaw because they're broken away from each other. So we got probably the best preserved Microraptor teeth that anybody has ever found on this specimen. And they saw that some of the teeth had serrations on them that we weren't sure about before because apparently the previous finds weren't in as good of condition. And now that we have this better preserved one, we can see that there were, in fact, serrations on most of the teeth, if not all of the teeth. Up next was a talk by Greg Funston, and he was talking all about juvenile T. rex and T. rex embryos, more specifically how we have a lack of these very young T. rex until now, potentially. Nice. So there was a toe bone found in Alberta and a dentary found in Montana, and the toe bone looks like it's about 71 million years old, and it's probably from an Albertosaurus juvenile. They said it's clearly a juvenile because it's too big to be from any of the other dinosaurs from the area, but it's way too small to be an adult Albertosaurus. <laughs> they estimate that its size was only about one meter long, though, when it died. Hmm. So pretty small. That Montana dentary is from the Two Medicine Formation, and it was about three centimeters or a little over an inch long. And they scanned it with a synchrotron and found 10 alveoli and eight teeth. Alveoli are those spots where teeth can grow into, sort of like two sockets. The teeth may be a null generation, meaning that they're not a first generation tooth, which is the teeth that you're born with. If you're a dinosaur, I mean, humans aren't really born with any teeth, but <laughs> dinosaurs are. And in fact, they're born with their second set of teeth in some cases. They have a full set of teeth grow in while they're in an egg, and then they lose those teeth and grow another set of teeth. So those ones that are grown and then lost before even hatching are known as the null generation. A practice set of teeth. <laughs> yeah, it's really weird. A lot of times they look really different than the first set of teeth that they end up having. We talked about this with a sauropod or an early sauropodomorph and how it had teeth that almost looked like a later diplodocid or something. But that was the null generation teeth and then the later regular teeth look completely different. One of the reasons they think it might be a null generation set of teeth is that they're being replaced on the labial side, which is really weird. So that means that the teeth are being replaced from the cheek side 
inwards into the mouth, which is just a really weird thing that doesn't happen much at all except for in null generation teeth. And because of that, we think that this dentary is probably from a fossilized embryo, and it looks a lot like a T-Rex jaw. They estimate the full skull length would have been around 89 millimeters, making it a little less than four inches long, although it might have grown more since it wasn't ready to hatch yet. You know, if it still has these null generation teeth, then it might have grown more. If it had been at full size, though, its full body length would have been around 71.5 centimeters, or a little bit over two feet. It was found near a Myasaura eggshell. Who was it going after the Myasaura egg? Well, it was probably still in an egg itself. Okay, never mind. <laughs> oh, it's one of those, maybe they snuck it in to be taken care oh, of. Oh, like a cuckoo bird? Mm. Yeah, I guess that's possible. They did say that they couldn't find any T-Rex eggshell around there, and no one's ever really found a diagnostic Tyrannosaur egg, period. But this individual would have been able to fit into some of the larger eggs that we found known to other dinosaur genera. And then they also kind of randomly postulated that maybe Tyrannosaurs laid soft shell eggs, because we think that was the ancestral condition of archosaurs. But... Norell pointed out in a recent paper that all of its known relatives that we have eggshells from laid calcified hard shell eggs. So most likely T-Rex laid a hard shell egg and we just haven't found it yet, I guess. So maybe there's one somewhere in the two medicine. I don't know. It'd be nice to find one. We found so many eggshells there that you'd think we would have found a T-Rex one by now if it was there, but I guess maybe not. Or I should say Tyrannosaur, not necessarily T-Rex, could be another Tyrannosauroid. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Really quickly, there weren't very many talks or posters about Mexico, but there was one poster by Hector Rivera Silva pointed out that there were three new dinosaur finds in the Olmos Formation in northern Mexico, kind of near the Rio Grande and Texas border. There was an unidentified notosaurid, hadrosaurid, and chasmosaurine ceratopsian. Hmm. So three potentially new dinosaurs. Good variety. Yeah. So I, he was hoping to identify the bones and get some more specific taxa later. A lot of times that's why people present posters at SVP is because you can get it in front of a thousand paleontologists and get a bunch of opinions and more information on it. Josh Hedge had a good talk about Utah's mustn't touch it formation, which is one of my favorite formation names. The most important thing I think about this find was that there were some macro elongatulithus eggs Thing is really hard to say, mm -hmm. but they're massive eggs. They're about 60 centimeters long. They're usually laid in pairs. That's like two feet long, by the way. Ulithis, oh, that means that we only know the eggs. Yeah, it's name. Well, it's the name of the egg. We do know that these are associated with Gigantoraptor. Oh, cool. But yeah, you have to name the eggs separately. You don't just say it's a Gigantoraptor egg. You have to give it its own name. They're from the late Cretaceous. They can be up to 4.75 millimeters thick which is crazy thick. It's almost a quarter inch thick. They have infrequent but large pores, and all of the U.S. finds of these eggs so far have been in Utah, except for one find in Idaho. And the fact that they're in the U.S. means that we might have a gigantoraptor-type animal somewhere in the U.S., unless this egg is from something else. So we don't know for sure what kind of egg it is. Well, for example, Baby Louie was found, also known as Baby Long, <laughs> was found in a macro elonga tulithus egg. So we're pretty sure we know what type of dinosaurs were found in them, but we can't be positive all the time. Different dinosaurs could have eggs that look really similar. Mm -hmm. So maybe in the near future, we'll find another massive weirdo <laughs> oviraptor in the U.S. Yeah. For our Allosaurus fans, we had a really cool poster by Julian Diepenbrock, and he was talking about how in the past people have mentioned that Allosaurus seems to have multiple different types of teeth, but people haven't really gone through and specifically documented what types they were and what their exact characteristics are. So in general, people just talk about Allosaurus having theropod-like teeth, and that's as opposed to something like, say, a T-Rex, which has these big banana <laughs> type teeth I always think of them as. They're more for crushing bone than they are for slicing through flesh. And they're quite a bit bigger in cross section. So if you cut through it, it's like cutting through a banana. There's a lot more meat on that tooth than there is on a, a thin little typical theropod tooth. I'm going to start thinking of bananas differently. Yeah. So Julian went through and looked at all of these different Allosaurus teeth and he found two tooth types. There was a D-shaped cross-sectional tooth that's actually kind of similar to a T-Rex tooth. It's got serrations on the sides rather than just on the front and back like you typically see on a theropod tooth. And those, I believe, are only in the front of the mouth. 
in the premaxilla, so they're not all of the teeth and maybe not the most recognizable Allosaurus teeth. As you get farther back in the mouth, they're more laterally compressed, meaning they're narrower teeth, more blade-shaped. So if you cut cross-sectionally through them, they'd be more shaped like a knife than they are like a banana. More on the <laughs> knife, on the knife to banana scale that we're all familiar with. So it's an interesting scale. Yeah, I just made it up. But that does make Allosaurus a quote-unquote pseudo-heterodont, and there might even be a third type of tooth as well. So yeah, it's not as simple as just having narrower teeth than T-Rex. It's got a little bit more going on in its mouth. Speaking of carnivores, there was a talk about juvenile tyrannosauroids, and that was a talk by Jared T. Voris. And basically, like I mentioned before, we have very, very few fossils of these juvenile and embryonic tyrannosauroids, and it's causing some trouble because people argue about nanotyrannus. We want to know what these baby T-Rex looked like. In this case, we don't have any T-Rex in these formations, but we do have Gorgosaurus and Displetosaurus because they're a little bit earlier, more like 70 million years ago. At the start of his looking at some of the previous work, there were two fossils that had been called juvenile Gorgosaurus and one that had been called a juvenile Displetosaurus. But after looking really closely at all three of these, they think all of them were actually Gorgosaurus, not two Gorgosaurus and one Displetosaurus. And it basically comes down to the ridge near the eye and a few other details about where the skull bones fused. So unfortunately, we kind of lost one <laughs> because we had two Gorgosaurus and one Displetosaurus, and now we only have the three Gorgosaurus. But then going through the collections at the Royal Tyrrell Museum, they found two more fossils that looked like juvenile tyrannosauroids, and both of them may be from a juvenile Displetosaurus. So at the end of the day, now we have two juvenile Displetosaurus and three juvenile Gorgosaurus bones to work with. Even better. Yeah. Unfortunately, there isn't a lot of overlap between what are now thought to be the juvenile Displetosaurus and juvenile Gorgosaurus fossils, so we can't really make a lot of comparisons between the two, but it does give us a good starting point to compare things. And to me, all of them looked a lot like Nanotyrannus in that they were a lot narrower and smaller and had that sort of like elongate skull without being as tall. Filling those different ecological niches. Yeah. While being the same taxon. Mm -hmm. There are a couple talks about that that we're going to get to. There was a quick interesting poster on Sue the T-Rex by Kristen Brink. Basically, Sue had some tooth pathologies. I had never heard about this before. Poor Sue, so many pathologies. Yeah, these teeth weren't found in Sue's skull, but they were found in association with the original find. Essentially, what they think happened is that Sue might have had an oral infection that's common to birds called trichomonosis, and it causes large waxy nodules, as they call them, in the mouth. Painful. Yeah, it's not ideal. And it could have kind of pressed up against the gums. And when things are pressing up the gums, they can distort teeth and otherwise cause them to grow in strange ways. And they think that happened in this case. Well, that makes it hard to bite. It does, especially because one of the teeth was curved 45 degrees near the end. It was kind of bent. The denticles bent around with the deformation. So you could tell it was probably caused while growing and it wasn't something that bent after the fact. And then the other two teeth... I said there were three teeth that were weird. The other two are fused together, so they're kind of a combo, weird, double, strange tooth. Both of the teeth have 
unusual denticles where you wouldn't expect them and they're stretched out and in spaces where they shouldn't be and not in spaces where they should be. And the larger tooth, again, is bent at the end. So lots of weird stuff going on with these teeth, probably indicating something wrong with Sue's gums. I wonder if they were sensitive too. Well, since they have so many teeth and they can shed them, I'm wondering if they might have just been shed more quickly yeah. if they're all screwy. Or maybe even just using them, if they're bent, they might be more susceptible for breaking off and then being replaced by another tooth. We had another cool find from a place we rarely hear about. This one was in Uzbekistan, and the paper was by Kohai Tanaka. The really cool thing about this poster was they think they found a neovenatorid, in other words, a relative of neovenator, which is not a tyrannosaur. And they estimated it was about seven and a half to eight meters long, putting it well over 25 feet long. And that would have made it the largest known predatory theropod in the Bisecti formation, where it was. Apex predator. Yes. And the cool thing about that is it was much larger than the contemporary Tyrannosauroid in the area, Timurlingia, which was only about three to four meters long. Wow. So it's only like half the length and maybe a tenth of the weight or something since weight scales quite a bit as the length gets longer. And this would make it the latest co-occurrence of a neovenatorid and a tyrannosaurid before the huge tyrannosauroids took over all these ecosystems and became the apex predators everywhere. So it's helping to sort of narrow down when tyrannosaurids took over. It doesn't have to be the same time all over the world, but at least this is another microcosm of that tyrannosaurid versus other theropods in the niche battle for dominance. <laughs> but in the end, tyrannosaurids won. Yep, they were definitely last man standing or last woman standing, since we don't know the gender of any of these dinosaurs. <laughs> Speaking of how large dinosaurs were, Kat Schrader had a talk that was all about basically how dinosaurs grew so big. And she had a really great quote that she started the talk with saying, the most important attribute of an animal, both physiologically and ecologically, is its size, which was by G.A. Bartholomew in 1981. I thought that was pretty fitting. And it really speaks a lot to these different dinosaurs and how they behaved because that size really does inform a lot about how they fit into the ecosystem. Typically, when we look at a group of animals, they'll have what we call a right skew, which means there are a lot more small-sized animals than there are large-sized animals in a group. But weirdly, in dinosaurs, we see a left skew with less diversity. So there is a lot more large individuals than there are small individuals, which is super strange. Mm -hmm. And paleontologists have been trying to figure this out for a long time. One little statistical note on this, in order for dinosaurs to be the same right skew that we see with most modern animal groups, we'd need to be missing about 90% of the dinosaur diversity and all of them would have to be small. <laughs> <laughs> so we can be pretty sure that there is something weird going on with the skewness. I mean, it's possible that we're missing tons of small ones, but it's unlikely. The neat thing that Kat did was she looked at local scale environments and not just the global scale and found that on a local scale, the carnivores have the expected right skew, meaning there are lots of smaller individuals, but they were missing the 100 to 300 kilogram weight distribution. However, this might be caused by the ontogenetic niche shift like we've talked about with tyrannosaurids and how they, as they grew up, 
they might have filled in this gap temporarily and forced out the competitors. It's reinforced by the fact that that missing gap is more pronounced in areas that have megatheropods <laughs> or very large adults, which would have had to grow through that transition period at one point. And in that way, they say that the juveniles act as quote unquote morpho species. Hmm. So in other words, it's like a form of a species in that size range, but it's really just a morphology of a specific species. So it's kind of a weird thing where we don't really talk about it today, but it's like if you had a huge elephant and it ate a certain type of plant and it spent a lot of time at a small scale eating some other plant and therefore that baby elephant was gobbling up all that vegetation and there wasn't room for some other species to live at that scale. It's an awkward phase. Yes. Or not an awkward phase, so they want to take advantage of it for a while. True. So another way to put it is that the juvenile theropods are fitting into that carnivore gap that we see so often. Another take on that was by Tom Holtz, and he always just has fantastic talks. They're one of the best science communicators I've seen. And he was talking about theropod guild structure and the tyrannosaurid niche assimilation hypothesis. In other words, tyrannosaurids grow an extreme amount and then they go through different niches, just like Kat was talking about. But in his case, he's emphasizing the guild structure and he defines guild as a group that exploits the same class of environmental resources in a similar way. So one example is large mammalian predators in Africa. There's a lot of different predators there, but they're sort of exploiting the environment in a similar way. By comparison, the Hell Creek has a small number of predators relative to what you would normally see in an ecosystem. So it's not just that there's this weird left skew where we're getting a whole bunch of big predators where you wouldn't expect to see it. You're not even seeing as many individual predators as you would expect to see. In order to test why, Tom created a sample set of Jurassic and Cretaceous theropod faunas. So basically looking at the entire ecosystem where he could reassemble it. And in order to pick it for his test, he wanted to see at least three distinct carnivorous theropods that were over 10 pounds in weight. So that way you're not just counting a bunch of bird ecosystems and at least six total dinosaurs. There were actually a lot of places that met these criteria. There were 30 that had tyrannosauroids and 29 with the largest carnivore that was something other than a tyrannosaurid. Wow. Yeah, it's a pretty good sample size. Paleontology usually doesn't have that many. Mm -hmm. Some of those regions also allowed for multiple slices of time. So if you could separate it into like, say, the lower and upper X formation, then you could count it more than once in this analysis because you might have different groups of animals that you can tell. But the most interesting result is probably about the Hell Creek, or maybe I should say Heck Creek, <laughs> so I don't get censored. <laughs> it was missing three carnivore size classes, and in general, tyrant or tyrannosaurid communities average three missing taxa, where non-tyrant communities average only two missing taxa. So there's something going on with those tyrannosaurid environments where they're occupying an extra niche, it looks like. On the other hand, there weren't any missing herbivore classes, so you could kind of compare and see that it's not just something with the ecosystem where mid-sized animals aren't fitting in. If anything, there's more herbivore diversity in these areas, so it's not just a taphonomy thing, or it doesn't appear to be. Essentially, 
Tom Holtz came to the same types of conclusions that Cat did, which are that the adult T-Rex preys on large taxa and juvenile T-Rex probably prey on smaller taxa, most likely herbivores. And if this is the case, you'd expect a sort of fast shift in size so that it's kind of a bimodal situation where there's the small group, the small guild <laughs> focusing on hunting smaller animals and then the large guild focusing on hunting the larger animals. And that's exactly what we saw in the CAR 2020 paper that showed the T-Rex growth curve and that there was this huge growth spurt basically in the late teenage years of T-Rex. It's possible that other theropods grew up faster, but we don't have as much data. But Tom Holtz really wants to see if there are any Gondwana predators that look similar, like Carcharodontosaurus, for example. In those ecosystems, are the little Carcharodontosaurs filling in those niches as well? Hmm. Yeah, that'd be fun. Yeah. It was kind of funny because Tom Holtz is always talking about how great Tyrannosaurus are. And at the end, he was like, this is the only time you're going to hear me say this, but someone should really look at another group of animals, not just Tyrannosaurus, so we can fill in these gaps. Well, notice he said, somebody else should look at that. Yeah, not me. Yeah. <laughs> He's going to stick to the Tyrannosaurus for sure. We had another cool Allosaurus poster, this one by Riley Sumbathy, and in it, they were talking about basically the growth rate of Allosaurus, and they pointed out that basically... When we're looking at Allosaurus, most people have focused on the Cleveland Lloyd Quarry, which is a good thing to do because it's a bone bed. So you can compare really direct comparisons between different individuals. You don't have to worry if it's a different species or a different subspecies or something because they all died at the same time and place. But the problem with that is when you extrapolate that out to all Allosaurs everywhere, you can't be sure that they were all basically growing the same. There could be something unique to that environment that was causing them to grow in a different way. So they extended the Cleveland Lloyd information and added four additional sites of Allosaurus known from throughout North America. And they added individuals which ranged in age from 10 to 29 years old to try to see what kind of growth curve they had. So for a little bit of background, the Cleveland Lloyd quarry Allosaurus grew in a really variable way. So they talk about the growth rate being highly plastic. In other words, some of them grew really rapidly and then slowed down. Some of them grew slowly at first and then grew rapidly after. Some grew slowly, then rapidly, then slowly again. Every sort of combination you can come up with, Allosaurus seems to have grown through in Cleveland Lloyd. So they wanted to see if that sort of thing was happening everywhere, or maybe if Allosaurus in other environments were growing in a more predictable way. So strange. Yeah, dinosaurs are strange. <laughs> Of all the dinosaurs that were included in the sample, only three of them had an EFS, which is also known as the external fundamental system. And that's basically when the lags are piling up really close and it indicates that the animal has stopped growing. They also didn't find any correlation between bone size and specimen age, which is really weird that there was no correlation between the size <laughs> of the Allosaurus and how old it was. Part of that could be because so few of them were fully grown. If you had a lot of fully grown ones, I assume you'd have a little bit of a correlation at least, never, hopefully. Never assume with dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But yeah, it was really weird. And he even said the largest specimen was one of the youngest. So that's really weird. <laughs> and the oldest specimen was one of the smallest. So there, it's like all over the place, really weird growth going on with Allosaurus, but it's been confirmed that it's not just Cleveland Lloyd. It's not like the same weird thing that was causing them all to die in the same place was causing them to grow at different rates. They're growing weirdly all over the place. 
Because why not? Real quickly, we might have a new ornithomimosaur from Mississippi. This poster was shared by Songbatar Chinzorig, and the dinosaur is tentatively named the Utah ornithomimosaur, but Utah is spelled E-U-T-A-W, not U-T-A-H. Not like the state. Yeah, exactly. The bones are about 84 million years old. They're from the late Santonian. They're not in the best condition, but there are two individuals. In total, there are vertebrae, toe bones, foot bone, a tibia mid-shaft, which is like if you cut off all the important parts at the ends of the tibia, you just have a little bit of the middle of the tibia, and a single hand claw. They can tell that it's similar in size to a Gallimimus or an Archansaurus, and the reason I bring up Archansaurus is because it's really nearby, which obviously could mean that this Utah Ornithomimosaur is actually an Archansaurus, but they did find differences in the toes between the Utah Ornithomimosaur and Archansaurus, so it might be unique enough to get its own name in an upcoming paper. I think it should be Mississippi Saurus. <laughs> there's an Archansaurus. It's got a nice ring to it. <laughs> yeah. Or if we could fit a few more I's in there somehow, or S's, like mm. Mississippiensis's. It's quite a mouthful. Yeah. We also had a really special find from Africa. This one was shared in a poster by Walid Kaseb. And basically, they found 16 theropod footprints in the south of Eastern Desert, Egypt. Eastern Desert is an area, so south of Eastern Desert. It's from the late Cretaceous. It's from the Nubian sandstone. It's only the second record of tetrapod footprints in Egypt, period, which is crazy because tetrapods are like everything, right? We're tetrapods. Amphibians are tetrapods. Everything's a tetrapod, basically. And there's only two records of footprints there now. Wow. This is also the first record of tetrapod footprints in eastern desert Egypt. So, yeah, not even talking about the first dinosaur footprints, the first basically any kind of animal that you'd think of footprints. So it's pretty cool. Could be really helpful for helping us figure out some of these ecosystems that we don't know so much about. Mm -hmm. I was really hoping at first that it might be a spinosaur because I want to know what spinosaur's foot looks like. Was it webbed? Yeah, exactly. You could probably tell from a footprint if you're lucky. Unfortunately, these are a little bit too new because they're from the late Cretaceous, so it's not going to be a spinosaurid footprint, but it could be something else really helpful. And last in our evolution and biology talks, I want to mention the presentation by Zixuan Chin, and it was all about alvarosaurus, and I love alvarosaurus with their weird little chest claws <laughs> and not a lot else going on on the forelimbs. <laughs> They were looking at how alvarosaurids ended up at such a weird size and body proportions and all this stuff. Basically, the summary is early alvarosaurids had all sorts of different body sizes. They ranged from pretty small to relatively large, between 10 and 50 kilograms. So what is that, about 20 pounds to over 100 pounds. <laughs> that is quite a range. <laughs> and Haplochirus was pretty big. It grew quick and had a long life. There was Shivuya, which grew quick and had a short life. There was Shishinicus and Shishiguonicus, which had a long life and slow growth. It's sort of like we we're talking about with Allosaurus, where they had a lot of plasticity in their growth. I'm not sure if we have a lot of samples of these individuals or if this might be a little bit of individual variation. But in any event, there was a lot of different lifespans and growth rates going on in these early alvarosaurids. 
But then about 90 million years ago, things started to get a little more consistent and miniaturization happened. They dropped from up to 50 kilograms to under 0.5 kilograms, which is basically a pound. Some of them did get a little bit heavier. There was a lot of diversification happening in general 90 million years ago, but this could indicate that they're filling a new ecological niche. So maybe it's when alvarosaurids became, say, like termite specialists mm -hmm. or something to that effect. A small but mighty niche. Yes. So that's all we've got for the evolution and biology of non-avian theropods track at SVP. But don't worry, we will get into way more in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. That was just the theropod session and not even all the theropod talks because there were theropod talks in some of the other areas like in taphonomy, for example. Mm -hmm. Lots of cool stuff coming up. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Of course, we have other news because dinosaur news never stops. It doesn't. <laughs> So, it's a little overwhelming sometimes. <laughs> uh, I like it. So uh, first up, in China, a five-year-old, Yang Jirui, who loves paleontology, found five 130-million-year-old theropod dinosaur footprints, speaking of theropods, while on a family trip to the village of Chaoyang in Sichuan, China. So they were visiting his grandfather nearby, and then he asked his family to take him to Chaoyang because he'd heard about these chicken feet markings mm -hmm. there. And the people who lived there knew of the footprints, but they hadn't linked them to dinosaurs before. So when Yang saw them, he said, well, these could be dinosaur prints. So his parents took photos and then sent them to paleontologist Xing Lida, who confirmed that, yeah, they are theropod prints. Cool. So well done and only five years old. Should have had a poster at the theropod session. Maybe next year. <laughs> next, I recently learned, or maybe I did know this and had forgotten, but the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has a collection of dinosaur fossils. And actually, because of them, that's how we got the nation's T-Rex. So hmm. what happened was the Corps of Engineers was created by George Washington during the Revolutionary War, and they manage over 8 million acres of land in the U.S. now. And a lot of their collections, archaeological and paleontological, come from flood control projects that happened in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. I guess that makes sense. People talk about every time you build a dam or do a major excavation project, you're likely to find some fossils. Exactly. So when building these dams, a lot of fossil beds were exposed. <laughs> so the Corps of Engineers, like I said, they're responsible for the nation's T-Rex, which was found in 1988 by rancher Kathy Wankel and her husband Tom. So it's also known as the Wankel T-Rex. And they were fossil hunting near Fort Peck Reservoir in Montana when they saw part of a shoulder blade. It took about a year to figure out who owned this land where the fossils were found. <laughs> really took that long. Yep. And then members of the Army Corps of Engineers started to dig for the Wankle T-Rex. Though according to Smithsonian Magazine, the Wankles dug up part of the shoulder blade and arm and then took them to the Museum of the Rockies, which excavated the rest of the skeleton over a few years. Anyway, they found it to be about 85% complete. Wow. So it seems like the two groups worked together. Since the Wankel T-Rex was found on lands controlled by the Army Corps of Engineers, whenever it's on display, it's on loan. 
And at first it was on loan at the Museum of the Rockies, and now it's biting the head of a triceratops in the National Museum of Natural History, the Smithsonian, in the Hall of Fossils deep time. Cool. It's a little bit weird that the Army Corps of Engineers was, it was on their land, but they had to figure out who owned the land. I think it was near a border or something. Gotcha. So it took a while to figure out. Next in Australia, Cronosaurus Corner. It's a museum in Richmond in the outback in Queensland. And unfortunately, we couldn't make it there during our trip. We ended up going to Winton and Hugh Hendon instead, but maybe someday we can go back. Yeah, it was just a, it was a little too far out of the way and we couldn't be driving at night because we were afraid of hitting a kangaroo and totaling our car. <laughs> so we had to be a little choosy at a, at a couple of junctures there. Yeah, but Chronosaurus Corner has an app now so you can visit virtually. Oh, cool. Yeah. I guess we'll go now. We can, yeah. <laughs> we can see photos and listen to audio about some of their specimens. Nice. Yeah, apparently they have some, well, obviously they have a big Chronosaur. Mm-hmm. But it looks like they also have some dinosaurs. In Singapore, there's a new permanent outdoor dinosaur display called Jurassic Mile, and they have over 20 life-size animals around a cycling and a jogging path, Hmm. including a T-Rex. So it's free, it's open 24 hours, but between 9 a.m. to midnight, I guess when they expect more people, you have to book times to enter so you can ensure safe distancing. In Malaga, Spain, a Jurassic Park-style theme park is going to be opening next year, 2021. And it's going to be called Rincon de la Victoria Dinosaur Park and Zipline Theme Park. <laughs> and Zipline Theme Park. Yeah. So it's going to have animatronic dinosaurs and life-size replicas and a zipline, as well as a hiking trail that resembles the Jurassic in Southern Europe. Though I did read that the zipline part isn't coming for a few more years after. You zipline through a dinosaur's mouth? I don't know, but I was just thinking about how Jurassic World Camp Cretaceous, they have the zipline. Yeah, that doesn't really go well. But maybe in this theme park, it could. Yeah, they're taking extra time to make sure it's safe. Right. Plus, the dinosaurs are animatronic. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That helps. (laughs) That makes things safer. Yep. Speaking of theme parks, there's some intrigue about whether Disney plans to reimagine the dinosaurs in the Disney Animal Kingdom ride Dinosaur. So that speculation comes after a post on the Disney Parks blog about National Geographic's recent reimagining dinosaurs issue, which we've talked about. And that Disney might reimagine their dinosaurs. But after I read the initial post more closely, it seemed more like that Disney Parks blog post was a plug for Adventures by Disney, where you go to Montana with them for seven days, and then you go to Yellowstone National Park, and you glamp at a rustic (laughs) dude ranch, and then you see the dinosaur complex after hours at the Museum of the Rockies, where you can see a really great collection of T-Rex skulls, which we've seen. Yeah, it's in the public, so you can see it also just going to the museum like a regular person. Yeah. So I guess on the title, it sounds like, oh, maybe they're rethinking it, but reading it, it didn't really sound like they were going to do that anytime soon. (laughs) It was just like a weird plug for a super expensive dinosaur trip. Yeah, that tangentially involves dinosaurs (laughs) because Museum of the Rockies. Interesting. And last, we got some quick Jurassic World Dominion news. They released some more photos, and one of the latest is a baby Lystrosaurus, which is not a dinosaur, it's a therapsid, and therapsids gave rise to mammals. It's pretty cute, though, and at first glance, if you just look at it for a couple seconds, it could look like a dinosaur. Maybe a baby Ceratopsian, kind of, and scaly, it's sprawled out. It almost looks like it has a frill. It's a little too sprawled, I would say, to look like a dinosaur. That's true, it is too sprawled. But anyway, in the photo, it's wearing a mask. Oh, that's good. Yeah. I think that came out around the time they said that they had some 
positive tests for COVID. Keep that Listerosaurus safe. Mm-hmm. And now onto our dinosaur of the day, Tarascosaurus, which was a request from Ricardo via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. Tarascosaurus was an abelosaurid theropod that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now France in the Fuvellian beds. It was carnivorous and based on the femur, estimated to be about six and a half to 10 feet or two to three meters long. The type species is Tarascosaurus saluvicus. It was named in 1991 by... Jean Leloeuf and Eric Bouffetat. The genus name means Tarasque lizard. And Tarasque is a mythical dragon from Provence, France that had this lion-like head, a turtle-like shell, six feet with bear-like claws, what? and a scaly serpent-like tail. Yeah, it's crazy. I guess that's a dragon. It sounds more like an insane chimera. When in doubt, though, dragon. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> The species name refers to Saluvii, which is a Gaelic tribe that lived near Marais. In 1988, Eric identified an upper jaw found near. In 1988, Eric identified an upper jaw found near Porcho as an abelosaurid, and then later looked at other large theropod fossils found in the late Cretaceous in Europe and found that they were abelosaurids. And then he found what became Tarascosaurus bones in the collection of the University of Lyon, found by an unknown collector on the steep slopes of Lambeau du Bosset. The holotype is part of a thigh bone. It's about 8.7 inches or 22 centimeters long. And the paratype includes two dorsal vertebrae, which may be from the same individual as the holotype. Other referred fossils include a damaged tail vertebra, as well as fossils from Spain. Not a whole lot of material down from this one. Yes, and so it was considered a gnomum dubium in 2003 by Oliver Rahu because the fossils are too fragmentary and not distinct or diagnostic. Yeah, sounds like a good call. Yeah. He said that abelosauroids in France during the late Cretaceous was likely, but more fossils need to be found to show the phylogeny. And justify a new dinosaur genus, because mm-hmm. this could just be something else we already know about. And now for our fun fact. I'm doing the fun fact this week. It's weird. You did the beginning of the news. Now you're doing the fun fact. Yeah, but you had a whole chunk in between. (laughs) That's true. Anyway, it's about the fact that turtles can be murderous. (laughs) (laughs) Like the use of murderous, not like carnivores or (laughs) hunters. Let me explain why I chose the word murderous and not carnivorous. It's both, but it seems very intentional. So what we found out during SVP this week during one of the more informal chats was that turtles can sometimes turn carnivorous. Yeah, they're generally considered omnivorous, but not all the time. Yes. And in one story, we heard about there was a group of turtles and one of them became the biggest and turned carnivorous and then it turned murderous. (laughs) (laughs) It's murderous because it's intraspecific. Yes, because it literally snapped the head off of its fellow turtles. It would sneak up on them and then just bite the head off. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. Just wanted to point that out to everybody who's been talking about, oh, the poor turtles because the sauropods were stomping on them or whatever. I say to you, I think the sauropods did it on accident, whereas now we've heard about stories of turtles doing it on purpose. Either that or you're implying that the turtles had it coming and were asking for it. No, no. No victim shaming here. <laughs> That's not victim shaming if the turtle is a murderer. 
oh, I see. If the turtle was murdering and then the sauropod stepped in to stop this murdering turtle. Yeah, that's what I thought you were going to go with. I hadn't thought of that, but you know what? You could be right. (laughs) (laughs) Sauropods were the superheroes. They'd swoop in and save the other turtles from the big, mean murder turtles. I'm really liking the (laughs) storyline. Swing in from their tails. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm giving you too many ideas. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And join our community, patreon.com slash I Know Dino. We got lots of rewards and we do cool stuff like behind the scenes for SVP. Thanks again. And until next time. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.